As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. Thank you guys so much for checking us out every single week, listening to the show, watching us on YouTube. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on YouTube. We're almost to 100,000 subscribers. That is a goal of ours. If you help us get that, that would be really awesome. Let's kick this thing off with a bit of an icebreaker. Today's question of the day is, given the chance, what would you say to your five-year-old self? Man. Five? Five. Where were we living? We were at... Was it kindergarten? I feel like five-year-old self is a tough age. I don't remember anything self? from that age. I got a 10-year-old self walking around here. Yeah, the 10-year-old self. Yeah. Let's go with 10, because I don't think I would have remembered anything I would have told myself in five years either. This is a very challenging question. That is. Even my 10-year-old self, I think my... my uh, I tell myself, stop doing stupid stuff and stay out of the emergency room. Oh, I think I would tell myself, you're you, no matter... What everybody else saying, you're not stupid. Try harder. Mm. Yeah. 
I think at that, I it's think at the five, five to ten age, I was convinced that I was stupid, and I believed that all the way until I convinced myself I wasn't, which was in my adult years. That's wild. Deep questions need deep, deep answers. Deep, deep live answers. life and enjoy it. It's a game, never quit. It's designed to teach you something, whether you know it or not. Keep whether going. you realize it or not, whether it loves you, yeah, more than you can ever imagine. Yeah, just keep going. Don't take yourself so seriously. I think that's what I kind of tell myself. See, that's the problem. I've never done that. And it's... <laughs> yeah. And then you get the, you could be a little bit more serious about that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's like your parents like, hey, get out of the house. I'm tired of you being in here. Then you come back at the end of the day like, where have you been? Yeah. There's you just no. Take this a little bit more serious. <laughs> yeah. Well, for a 10-year-old self. Mm, there you go. Let's go with that. All right. Todd, how about you? You got some wisdom for us? That is a tough one. So he used to look at us like this when we were still in the... <laughs> <laughs> you walk in, he's got that, you're like, oh, yeah. damn. My 10-year-old self, you know, probably the biggest thing is it doesn't matter what people think about you. Do what's right, regardless of the consequences. You know, and if you lose friends, they weren't true friends. Do what's right every day. Dang, this is a deep. This is. I feel like I need some like soft piano music. This is a really deep question we got off. Make sure on you this put morning. that in there. When, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, will, I will do the, it. Some the, strings. The piano riff. It's gonna be like that church altar call music. Yeah. You know, you really feel it. Blues riff and beat. That's a great Watch question. Changes. <laughs> Try and keep up. That's a great question. Hey, we've got a great guest in store today. He is one of our own. Todd DeGhetto is a retired Navy captain who spent 30 years in the Navy Special Warfare as a SEAL officer. 30 years. 30 years. years. While in command, he led several high-risk operations critical to the national defense of the United States. Todd is known for effective leadership and clear decision-making in high-stress environments. And one of our very own Team Never Quit speakers. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you very much. One hell of a model American. One hell of a model American. I, I, I don't know about that. I'll never forget one time. Um, I forget I forget how the conversation was going. I asked him, I was like, what year did you grad, graduate the Naval Academy? You know, just because I just kind of figured since you were the CEO, you were a Naval Academy grad. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't think anybody's ever insulted me like that before. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I went to a real school. Yeah, it would, yeah. I went to a real University school. University of Colorado. There's no, been some good I like, ones. I like harassing the <laughs> academy Over the years guys. about what he's busted us doing or the questions, because what do you ask your skipper? you got to come up with something real quick, right? And it's kind of like the one thing you throw out there was the... <laughs> one thing we always loved about him, because he would ask us, so, hey, guys, how, what's, how, how's, the, how's, the, how's the command, you know? That was cool. How's the morale of the command? What's going and, on with Because we had told him, like, hey, look, if you ask us that, we're going to tell you. I'll tell you, man. Real answers. Yeah, yeah that's what I wanted. And uh, he was—he was he knew we'd give it to him. I tell you, when when that—that's something that uh, one of my mentors, Jack Menendez, uh, told me before I went in command the first time. He said, "When you walk around, everybody's going to be on the best behavior." That time you busted Morgan in the hallway that with the flight. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> so, how about for some context for the listeners? How long have you guys known each other? 20, over 20 years now. No? Oh, oh two? When did, oh, you take, when did you take command? 2003. July okay. 2003. Yeah, since, 03. So, since 03. Wow. So, yeah, almost 20 years. That's wild. Yeah. Good times. He is, he is most fondly, we, we refer to him as Skipper. Yeah, the Skipper. All right. They still call me that. Still call you. You hear, <laughs> when you hear us throwing that verbiage That's around, what it is. This is, this is like, what we're talking about. I was elevated past 
that position. I was like, nope. So too bad. <laughs> too bad. <laughs> too bad. <laughs> That's how we're gonna roll. Let's. Uh, what we normally just start start back in the back to tell you where tell everybody where you came from. Hey, we don't a lot of this. We Most don't people know. Are like, hey, how did you guys end up where you are? Because where you you know you had to have the DNA. You were born for this, bred for this. Came from a family lineage, and most of the time, everybody's like, nope, not at all. Well, honestly, I grew up northwest New Jersey, run on the mountains, similar to you guys. You know, weekends you're told get out of the house. When chores were done, you were gone till dinner or dark. Whatever came first, and me and my friends, we just run the mountains. You learn how to navigate without a chart, without a map. It was great. Uh, but having a dad as a New Jersey State Trooper, one, I learned about the evil in this world. Two, I learned about honor. Doing what's right. Not doing what's politically correct. And you guys probably know I'm not politically correct. I'll call a spade a spade and Sometimes it gets me in trouble. Sometimes it doesn't. Went off to college. Originally, I was going to be a marine biologist. Beginning of my sophomore year, head professor came in from the field and said, hey, there are no jobs unless you get a Ph.D. You know, being a sophomore in college, I'm thinking, Ph.D.? Not only no, but I'm not no. sure I can get this bachelor's degree done. <laughs> so, believe it or not, I changed to chemical engineering because what? chemistry and physics was easy. Oh, wow. yeah. Really? One of those guys. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> but then it was like, okay. What's that chemistry that kicks everybody asses in college? Organic? Yes. Yeah. Organic chemistry? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working in Metallurgy Corporation, uh, working with gold, platinum, palladium, silver, that kind of stuff in the production R&D side of the house, and I enjoyed it. So chemical engineering seemed to be a good fit. That's the market to be in nowadays. But there were no chemical engineering degrees that I was going to get worth anything in New Jersey. So I looked, called a friend of my dad's. Uh, he told me the undergraduate places to go. One of them was University of Colorado Boulder. I was thinking, Boulder, Rockies, skiing. I'm going there. I'm in. Now, how do I pay for it? My parents couldn't pay for that. So I ended up applying for and got an accepted to ROTC. And, you know, growing up, watching the old UDT movies, I'm going to be a SEAL. So going in as a sophomore, I had to go up to Newport, Rhode Island to uh, Naval Science Institute, get taught by the Marines how to wear a uniform, how to march. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> what year was this? That was ninth, summer of 82. Okay. Were you guys born yet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're 75ers. Okay. Um, we age well. Absolutely. Uh when did the SEAL thing first come into your head? Where did you even hear about that? It, I mean, straight, to, straight the movies, like you said, or it's like... Yeah, that's what it was. I just, it was the challenge. They were the best. Figured that's what I'll go do. So I show up at NSI, and I'm talking to this Navy lieutenant who's checking me in, and he tells, I had just taken the Marine Corps PFT, and Marine Corps physical fitness test at the time, I don't know if it still is, it was a three-mile timed run, as many push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups you could get in two minutes. I maxed everything but the run. The run I did in 18, it was like 18 minutes, 26 seconds. That's respectable. <laughs> and he told me, you'll never make it. That's not good enough. You should go nuke power. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Straight, okay. to, straight to the sun. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, that's yeah. what he's thinking. You know, you're going to be a chemical engineer, nuclear power, 
That's the way to go. So it's like, he's like, you go in, do your time, you get a great job. Okay. Well, my first class cruise the next summer, I was on a new cruiser out of uh, the USS Long Beach out of North Island there in San Diego. Two weeks underway in a nuclear reactor, I was like, this mm-hmm. sucks. Negative, yeah. I do not want to do this. So we pulled in a port one weekend. I'm walking down the beach, and I see an obstacle course. Walk to the top of the berm, and there, there's, there's a Bud's compound. I was like, you know, screw this. I'm going to Bud's. Got back to college. They are like, how do you like new power? I'm going to Bud's. And they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. And they tried talking me out of it. I had an admiral, two captains try and talk me out of it. Nope, I'm going to Bud's. They were like, you can't make a career out of it. Hardly anybody makes it. I don't care. So that's what I did. My mind was set. And, you know, I, I never mean, thought about quitting while I was in there. I thought I was going to die a couple times. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who what bus class did you go through with? 135. Damn. That's almost my century class. Almost 135, 235. Uh, Lieutenant Scott died in class 235. Oh, yeah, during Hell Week? Yeah. You know how many people graduated Hell Week just recently? No. Do you? I heard it's low at 10. 10. 10, yeah. Wow. 10 days. stepped it back up again. Woo. You know how it ebbs and flows. You, what did your parents think about you becoming a, wanting to be a full-time frogman? They even know what that was? They're talking about my, back in the early 80s, man. Not very many oh, people knew who we were. My dad knew. Oh, check. Yeah. He, when he went into the Navy, he, he did it just one tour in the Navy. He wanted to go UDT. At the time, you could not go straight from the street in a UDT. You had to come out of the fleet. And, of course, you know how the recruiters are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, yep, you're going to go do this. No problem. You'll get to UDT. Oh, yeah. oh no. We got he never got the opportunity. For you and everything. Yeah. <laughs> he never got the opportunity. So that's kind of what put that bug in my mind. That was back when all the Vietnam bros were, we were instructors, instructors, right, and everything. It was the storms and shells yeah. came online. What, uh, how many people did you start with? You remember? You were oh one, oh two, oh. I I went in as an ensign. I was a brand new. Okay, I graduated, or I got my commission. I think it was like on a Wednesday night. Graduated the next day, yeah. Thursday. Showed up to buds on Monday. Oh, oh. You know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely. I was like, I want to hurry up and get to buds. Why? <laughs> <laughs> After you get that beat down, siblings or anybody else in the military? Um, my little brother was in the army for a while. Uh, my two sisters both married uh, police officers. So I was the only one that didn't carry a badge. My dad was a cop, New Jersey State Trooper. My older sister's husband was a New Jersey State Trooper. My little sister's husband was Orlando PD, chief of police. Now he's a sheriff in Orange County. Oh, wow. And my little brother, when he got out of the Army, he was up at Fort Campbell, was a local cop there in Hopkinsville, then was a sheriff, and then started making guns. Did you make it through Buds in one shot? One shot. Uh, <laughs> both you two, right? Yeah. We won Hell Week. My yeah. boat crew won Hell Week. What crew were you in? We were, the, we were the long-legged crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Giant thing, yeah, right? <laughs> we couldn't paddle very fast, but we could hey, run. Once you get, yeah. Once you get to the land, right, yeah. we would get our asses handed to us in uh, rock porters and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Oh, yeah. But once we got to the 
we put our boots on the ground, stand by, and once we learn how to work together. Because in yeah. the beginning, remember when that we were doing all that? It's a it's a nightmare. It's the funniest thing. You, my neck's gonna break in half, right? And just, <laughs> dude. You remember? Did they give you the speech before Hell Week? Don't eat uh, sugar, candy, soda, any of that crap. No, I don't. No, yeah. Well, they they gave us that spiel the Friday before Hell Week, and you know you take all that stuff with a grain of salt. We were, you know, it's Thursday night. You do the uh, um, round the world, right? Round the world, but then you had the scavenger hunt. Oh yeah, forgot about that. Okay, so they everybody's together. They go from last from the boat crew that was currently last. They had the most points to go to to the winners of Hell Week. We were we didn't have to go to any points, so they sent us to the tent. Mm. We got about three hours of sleep. So as soon as we get to the tent, a couple pre-trainees sneak in. They've got candy bars. They've got soda. And, of course, you know, you haven't eaten squat in a long time. Yeah. We're just shoveling that stuff down. Well, when the last crew gets in, it's like breakout all over again. You know, grenades rolling in the tent, machine guy with an M60 uh, going off next to your head. Yeah. So we all fly out of our racks and the next thing you know, you are just projectile vomiting or it's coming out your rear into your pants. You couldn't stop it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It was, we were all miserable. We were taking turns rolling off the boat on the paddle, <laughs> pulling our pants down, yeah. cleaning them out, getting back. And it was just, it was awful. No, we never got stopped. Yeah, I remember being in a rollback land on uh, towards the end of it. We had the Snicker bars stuck in our socks and the, tried to swim the pizzas out to the guys and everything like that. I had a guy in my boat crew. He was up front. We were doing the, uh, I think it was that long paddle. Mm. And he keeps on ducking down. And he's going, Mr. D, that's what they call me. Watch the walls. There are no walls. <laughs> And another guy jumps in after a pizza. Yeah. He saw a pizza. We, we had to circle back around, <laughs> drag him back in the boat. The one dude paddling that falls asleep and falls in. Oh, yeah. And then uh, we had one guy who was trying to put quarters in the back of the other guy's K-pop because <laughs> he thought it was a vending machine. He's like, what are you doing? I need to get something to eat, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's amazing how far your body oh, can go after your mind quits. Man. I didn't, I didn't, I never hallucinated. He's like, hey, I'm going to sleep and paddle the same. I'm just going to close my for a second paddle. And then, be, and then we'd start going in circles. And just like, oh, yeah. Oh, man, that around the world paddle. So after you graduated, first command? SDV2. And, Did uh, you pick that? No, I picked East Coast. Just East Coast? All SEAL teams, East Coast. Yeah, all, I picked all SEAL teams, and I went to SDVs. That was sending the tall guys there. Yeah. I thought that was some kind of sick joke. Because remember when we came in under you, our, everyone was over 6'2"? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It was an amazing opportunity, though. Because you guys know this. When you're working in that environment, there is no forgiveness. Yeah. He means, if he you forget a piece of kid, it's not like you're in the field and... You forget something, okay, maybe you're cold, maybe you're wet. No, you die. Yeah, miserable. You may not be getting shot at, but the effects underwater yeah. and those ships that you're dancing around. I learned that, more that, that stuff will kill you. Yeah. yeah, about gear maintenance and 
Oh yeah, squared situational away. awareness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you guys know the deal. My dive buddy, he knew me better than anybody. Mm-hmm. He could tell how I was doing, and I could tell how he was doing without ever saying a word. Yeah, Brower Brower was my dive buddy. Imagine he would like swim around with that tank. Oh, dude. Yeah, I had JJ. So, I mean, it, it, people don't realize we don't have comms underwater. So all the hand signals, the grips, the the grunts, the grunts and the noises are, the, are what you really get off of. I mean, oh, you yeah. just kind of, and the hand signals, and spending that much time with somebody underwater in the darkness, I mean, definitely builds a bond. Oh, yeah. I still talk to JJ regularly. I mean, where, where did you do your platoon commander push at? STV2. I got a platoon as an ensign. Really? Yeah. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, the guy that was slotted to take the platoon, we were low on officers. He came from SEAL Team 2, had one too many rig malfunctions. And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Send me back to SEAL Team 2. So it opened up the platoon, and they slid me in. And it was a hand-picked platoon because it was the second platoon that was going to do a DDS deployment. Oh, really? Yeah, the first platoon Evan Thompson had, and they, I mean, they did some amazing work of advancing the tactics because they were, again, a hand-picked platoon. Falling into another hand-picked platoon, it was great. My chief was just phenomenal. Who was it? uh, Ron Montgomery, Monty. One of the pieces of advice my dad told me before I got my commission was— you're going to be senior to your enlisted guys. And you may have to make the final decision, but they have a lot more experience to listen to. Them. Oh. And I took that to heart. And I listened to my LPO. I listened to my chief. And there were times Monty come up, he'd be like, Mr. D, I don't know if that's a good idea. He was very tactful about it. Yeah, very subtle. Oh, yeah. Subtle, tactful. All right, Monty, what? And he'd lay something out. You know, you're right. And But we worked so well together. We went into, you guys remember doing isolation exercises. So much fun. Oh, yeah. Skipper puts us in an isolation exercise. We're planning a real-world uh, operation. It was one of our current targets at the time. I won't get into what the target was. We plan it, and we're Skipper'd come in and out over the couple of days, and he was listening to what we were talking about. So at the brief back, when we're briefing him how we're going to do this operation, he stops me. Is that what you really want to do? No, sir. How would you really attack this target? So I laid out what we talked about. He said, why didn't you brief it that way? I said, because it's contrary to all our SOPs, our standard operating procedures. He said, rewrite them. You're training for war. So he gave us a green light to start taking those tactics and bringing them to another level. And that was a phenomenal opportunity as a junior officer. He gave oh. me enough rope to hang myself. Mm-hmm. He gave me the authority, the permission, but I also had the accountability. Um, you don't see that in a lot of leaders these days. It's a shame. And it is. And I think a lot has to do with, you know, you guys came in about the time that they were 
it was that whole uh, they were shrinking the force. Yeah, it was that shit. yeah, oh yeah. And it was leaders were CYA instead of letting guys run. I just happened to be lucky enough to always have skippers that gave you that room to run. Um, we had, I don't even remember how we got them. One of the guys brought in NEDU, the Naval Experimental Dive oh, Unit. Yeah. You know, they were the first ones to come up with the procedures of doing multiple UBAs, switching your breathing apparatus underwater. Yeah. From Mark V, or not Mark V, from the LAR V Puro II rig to the mixed gas Mark 15. Mm -hmm. So we took those procedures and wrote out procedures of how to execute them inside the SDV. We sent them up in a message because, you know, back then everything was done by naval message. We want to do these procedures by this date. Well, we didn't hear back from the Navy, but we executed them anyway. You're doing that in it, like, what would that be in the SV in the dip tank, or we all, did y'all go out and? Well, what we did is we followed the crawl, walk, run mentality. Yeah. We got, made sure the, um, the group um, master diver went through all the procedures before we even sent the message out. And he gave us a thumbs up. We classroom. We did dry pier side where the guys were in the SDV, literally sitting in the SDV on the cradle. Yeah. Then we put it in the water attached to the crane so it couldn't sink, couldn't go anywhere. We had safety divers and the dive suit literally sitting on top of the boat watching the guys do the procedure. Yeah. Everything was going fine. First crew goes out, does it. We're going to do daytime and then nighttime. So the first crew goes, they do the procedures, come back, no issues. Second crew gets in the boat. They're not 100 yards down away from the Cyclops, the little uh, dock we'd mm -hmm. use. And the boat comes to the surface, and I see the Mark 15 wrapped up in the screws. Well, <laughs> that's awesome. That's at the other side of the, of the deal. How did that even happen? We Look, leave it outside the one door? One guy standing up saying, we lost Johnny. He bailed out. So one of the guys, the best I can figure is, you know, when you're wearing that auger, full face mask, you got a five-point harness strapping that auger to your face. Mm -hmm. Part of the procedures is you're wearing a T-bit now. Yeah. So the... The reinforced hoses, there's steel reinforced hoses that we incorporated, you know, the old aircraft hoses, uh, because the rubber ones kept on uh, getting cut underwater. They don't have a whole lot of Dude. forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, flex so what, the best we can guess is somehow Johnny took a mouthful of water. I'm guessing he moved and it slipped out while he was inhaling. I don't know. He died of dry drowning. That's where you ingest water, your throat closes off, and it doesn't open up until you reach the surface or pass out. Well, he panicked. Rhino, his swim buddy, tried to hand him the emergency regulator because they were right there next to each other. And the surface there in uh, Desert Cove, it was only about three feet above the SDV. You could see the surface. Johnny went for the surface, got caught in the rig, and the boat's moving. 
You know the power well, of the boat. They're doing about two knots. He, he's gone. Well, he passed out, sank to the bottom. It took us about an hour to find him. We had within 10 minutes about 70 divers in the water. SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 4, SDV2, and the mudsuit divers. Just everybody converging. But the water was so dirty. Yeah. Visibility was only about a foot. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until one of the guys finally was able to get a uh, handheld sonar when we found him on the bottom. And I'll tell you, the hardest thing to that as a young officer was handing his mom his personal effects. That really changed my leadership style. Oh, how could it not? Because I found out after the fact that was not the first time that he had felt uncomfortable underwater. Oh, really? Had I known that, I would not have put him in that situation. Between being underwater and being in the SDV, I mean, some of the positions that we was have that, to get in. You said Rhino, was that Tom Rhino? Tom Rhino? No, no. Other Rhino? Because we had um, Schellenberger, remember? Yeah. When we got back from Iraq, he died on it. The same, same thing, took the breath and that cold water hit him. Yeah, you panic. Um, I don't think I've ever heard that I story. I never heard that story. That was 1987. I think, when that happened. And uh, so I got my first and only non-punitive letter of caution because we didn't, even though we followed the procedures, we didn't get in trouble because the Navy didn't approve them because the commander, he took responsibility for that. But we didn't do, we didn't use the SECMAR pre-dive sheet. Yeah. Which is our life preservers. I, I didn't even know there was one at that time. <laughs> so well, I, I got, I I got a non letter of caution for that. I asked for all the pre-dive checklists. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I vowed never put a guy in a position he wasn't going to be able to execute. And that saved another SEAL when I was a uh, assault team leader out at Damneck. One of our guys just he wasn't that he wasn't that great of a CQB shooter. He was a phenomenal sniper. No, he was my communicator, one of my communicators. He was phenomenal on the radio, phenomenal with call for fire. So I sat down with the command master chief and I used this as an example when Johnny died. That you know, he was a great SEAL on land warfare but he shouldn't have been in that position doing those advanced procedures. Was he driving? No, he was in the back. Shot, with yeah, oh, in the back. Yeah, they were in the back. Pilot, navigator, driving, guys in the back, mission specialists. Let's check. All right. Because, right. you know. That makes more sense. Now. Swimming that 15 <coughs> yeah. is not that comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's we same wanted. Rig. We went through SDV school 
with the 16, right. they're like, you don't dive this rig. Right. It's the one that NASA wears on in space. No, the 15 was a precursor to the 16. The yeah. 16 was the EOD's version because it was low magnetic. I remember sitting in class having to learn all the diodes and what. what. Oh, yeah. On top of everything else you got to do, you got to make sure you that, that sucker, because it has its own temperament. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah getting but you, you get complacent with it, too. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I almost died on the rig because I got complacent. Um, my dive by any eye. <laughs> and this comes down to how well he knew me. We're getting ready to do a dive cold water so i go to put my mask on and i go to snug up the auga the full face mask and one of the buckles rips out of the side of the mask so what do they do unscrew it get the spare mask out of the dive suit box put it on i put it on well there's no nose piece yeah so you can't valsalva right and i can't do it anymore my well, ears I are toast i've squeezed that. them yeah, too many too times so one of the guys runs back to the uh platoon hut to get a new auga. So I'm sitting there and I hear my 15 just going because it's still on. So the sensors are noticing that I'm losing O2. So it's trying to pump O2 into the breathing loop that's no longer closed. So I reach back and shut the rig off. A couple minutes later, guy comes back, they hook the mask up, I put it on. Dive soup. I've already had the full dive soup check. So I give the dive soup a thumbs up that it's working. <laughs> I can clear, and in the water we go. So we're starting to prep, going through all our prep with the uh, That's SDV. hilarious. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm looking up at the surface of the water, wondering, how, what the hell am I doing here? Oh, yeah. I bet. And I pull myself back in the SDV, and my dive buddy, I see the dive soup. The boat's powering toward me, and I give him an okay signal. My dive buddy's like, what the hell are you doing? I said, I don't know. I must have slipped. And I'm getting ready to do radio checks, and next thing I know, same thing. And I pop back awake, and I give the dive super thumbs up. He's like, what are you doing? What is wrong? I said, I have no ideas. I watch everything just yeah. close down, and I shut down because... They you shut done. the O2 down without the diluent. Is that what happened? Yeah. So when I when I passed <laughs> out, because you know that's a nice thing, hypoxy. If you gotta die, that's the way to go, because you just fall asleep. You breathe down the O2 level because it's scrubbing the carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is what tells your body you're running low on O2. Yeah. So that signal's not there. That signal's not there. So you just go to sleep. But when I inverted, when I passed out, oh, it, it I'm slightly heavy. So I'm going <laughs> head down. Yeah, yeah. The plenum collapses. It gives you a shot, shot of diluent, yeah, yeah. and you wake back up. Well, that third, fourth time I passed out, Rhino, it's cold. It's in the 30s. That water's in the high 30s. He jumps in in his BDUs. And he grabs me. My dive buddy grabbed me. They're like, pull your mask off. I'm like, hell no, the water's cold. And I pass out again. <laughs> I don't Never. know about the resilience of a freaking team guy, right? Just to keep going through were that. You, were you the CO when, um, I won't say his name on the radio, uh, filled his he's bottle? No, no. That was right before I got there. Okay, so still low. Okay. Yeah. That was before? Right. I remember that. 
I also heard somebody not feeling putting soda sorb in one of their LAR5 draggers and trying to do a dive. Well, we had a guy, when Johnny died, they put a moratorium on both the Mark 15 and the procedures of switching rigs underwater until they could go through the full investigation of what, what happened. So when they finally gave us a green light to dive again with the 15, we had to do a familiarization dive. We had a young kid do a dive. We were all underwater. Ten minutes is all we had to do. We all come back up. He's got a headache. So they take his rig off. They rush him to the, cha- to the chamber, have the uh, master diver, diving medical officer all meet over there. They do a medical check on him. He doesn't need to go in the chamber. One of my guys starts doing the post dive on his rig. Yeah. They take the soda sorb canister out, and it sounded like a maraca. Yeah. He said he didn't think he needed to fill it all the way because hey. it was a short dive. Uh-huh. What's up? Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, the canister we're talking about, it goes in our rig. It's full of these white granules that actually scrubs the CO2 out of our uh, breathing. Out of the, out of the breathing. Yeah, yeah the we breathing loop so. turns right back into oxygen, so you keep breathing. So if you don't put that, those granules in this container, it doesn't do that. And you're just breathing and carbon just dioxide. Breathing and I mean, there's a couple of our guys who've done that. And they come up like, man, I got a headache. I'm like, how do you live? <laughs> God. Oh. It's unbelievable, well, man. Well, he's still, he, he must have still been a little foggy. Because when he came back, you know, one of the last checks in the uh, post-dive sheet is to turn the rig up yeah, uh, to make uh, sure there's no water, water yeah. in the bottom of the plenum. Well, if he hadn't taken the Inconel bottles out, and he lifted the rig up, and they were not clasped into place. And we all hear those Inconel bottles oh, at yeah. 3,000 PSI start bouncing on the concrete. We're all diving, diving for cover. For the, yeah. Because if that valve gets knocked off, you've got a ballistic And these things are about the size cannonball. of a cannonball. They look yeah. just yeah. like a cannonball. It looks like a cannonball. Yeah. So I didn't know that I didn't know that you that you had lost a guy. Yeah. As an ensign, yeah, as a clinic commander. So fast, so fast, so so you're in a very you're you're in a position now. I know that 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 I don't think hardly any CEO has ever been in. Not many. Up uh, prior to nine eleven, not many had to. Well, man, after 9-11, everything, we threw it on your plate. You've been through more than most of Yeah, because then when you're a CO, Red Wing happens. Yeah. How, how it, I, I've always been intrigued about leadership that I've never, I, I, I was blessed that I didn't lose anybody when I was a platoon commander, but I had to make the call to parents when another member yeah. was either injured. I, I never had to make the call on life, but... Even that's hard, though. It was terribly hard, challenging call because I woke him up, and um, I would assume it was the same that I did when I got the call when when Red Wing was clacking off. How do you? How do you? Because one thing I always originally just, they they weren't going to notify you because you weren't on Marcus's page too, and I had. <laughs> One of the guys filled that out, dude. (laughs) Well, I had one of the guys come in from one of the other platoons 
and say, hey, sir, you you need to get somebody on Morgan. This was the day Red Wings happened. I said, why is that? He said, because they have a suicide pact. Yeah, a blood oath. I was like, great. So I call up. <laughs> like I got enough to worry about. I call up the group, and the Commodore wasn't available. So I got the chief of staff. And the chief of staff's like, nope, he's not on the page, too. I said, you need to get somebody on Morgan. Because you were at... Uh, jump school. Jump, well, uh, not you, jump school, you, but... Yuma. Man, uh, a halo. Free fall. Yeah. Out in Yuma. I said, because they have a suicide pack. He's like, got it. And that's when they put somebody on you. Yeah, JJ. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I talked to JJ about that. But that was... i tell you what. That was a tough morning. I used to get up... We're in Hawaii, so we're three hours from... The West Coast, six hours from D.C. That time change is crazy. And the East Coast. I would get up early in the morning. I was in the office usually around 5 a.m. I figured I'd get in, do all my calls to the East Coast, do all my calls to the West Coast, go through email, because they'd been up for three to six hours already. And then I'd be ready for PT. And then also that way I could get home and have dinner with my family. I wasn't there till eight o'clock at night and keeping my XO and everybody else who's worried about oh the old man's here, so I gotta be here. And I got the first call, I think it was like five twenty in the morning. Helicopter went down. We think three of your guys were on it. But we're not sure. You at the house or at the office? No, I was at the office. I'll check. About twenty minutes later I get a second call. Yes. Helicopter went down. Three your guys were on it. They were going to support a SR team, a recon team that called in troops in contact. And three of your guys are on it. We don't think there are any survivors. That's how my day started. <laughs> That's not funny. I'm sorry, but I just thought, you know. Well, you know. Phil Regeer was the XO at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And Phil won't mind me using his name. He, he rolls in right at about 6 a.m. Phil, we need to get the ombudsman. We need to get a chaplain. And we need to start doing notifications. And it was, it was a tough day. Uh, yeah. Not nearly as tough for you. Shit. But, Excuse me. Well, I've heard. It Since was, I got back, and I heard y'all have bad. It was, it. you know, walking up to Dan Healy's house and telling his wife and kids he's not coming home. Man, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Yeah, we, we started going through some stuff about from 5 to 10. This is what I've always respected about you as a leader. You, um, you never, well, we never, we never saw. Yeah, the, you never let that out. The, the pain and the, the hurt. You know, you always, you always led. Is you're very stoic. Well, as you guys know, you get real good at completely cutting your head off from the rest of your body. Yeah, yeah. No emotion, no feeling, no pain. And I truly didn't start processing that stuff until after I retired. 
Yeah. Because it, it, I always appreciated, and you can course correct me on this one if you want, Skipper, but I always appreciated the fact that you, you always understood that we, if this was a, a high risk job, you needed high risk individuals to do it. And even we, we have these setbacks, but we continued to move forward doing high risk operations. Yeah, yeah. That was clutch. So you didn't, you never became risk adverse. Yeah, yeah. No. Even when I got back. The day he he and I stepped back on the command, we were standing there, it, I, and there was never a feeling. Warren sent me home one day. I guess I would, I remember that, but there was never a wasn't a pity party. It's like a big man's club. Like you, you know, what I'm talking. About? I was the oddest. Thing. It stuck me in training for a few weeks. You know, and I was kind of sitting around, and uh, I could I was listening a lot, and I I think that's the only way I made it. There was never a. As a senior leader, I mean, how, what can you kind of give give us some insight on how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, you got a sounding board somewhere? Is it a mirror? Or you just we're talking about losing a lot of guys. Yeah. You just I don't know. You just do what you got to do, and uh, you know I brought I brought in the command first thing in the morning told everybody what had happened, what we knew and what we didn't know. And then I brought in all the spouses that wanted to come in. And there were a lot. Brought them all into the conference room. This is what happened. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. And we'll continue doing updates as we can. And they were greatly appreciative of that because nobody likes being in the dark. And at least if you don't know all the answers and you tell them, I don't know all the answers. Then they're not wondering. Um, our ombudsman, Karen, was just phenomenal. She's a superstar. She is, yeah, she's a superstar. Love she her. is a superstar. And Do you know she was the ombudsman when extortion happened? Yes. Has she been through every Well, one she was a group. She was a group ombudsman when extortion God, was seven. Dang, man. Uh, she's been through a lot. And... Uh, She's just an amazing lady. And having the support of my wife, she was amazing. I mean, you guys know this. I would tell, and I still tell everybody, we don't have the hardest jobs. When we deploy, oh, yeah, we have do. one job. That's the mission. Our wives are back home doing Everything else. Yep. Alone. And worrying about us. Yeah, there should be a deployment medal for the spouses. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, by themselves doing everything. Yeah. Everything. And then we come home beat up and miserable, and then they got to deal with that. Right. They're amazing. What, um, let me, if you mind me asking this, because I, I, like I like to focus in on things, lessons learned. What, um, looking back when all of this happened, what was the, was there something that you're like, I just don't, I don't know. Is there something that God need help on this one or where, and it's never easy, especially in that position. I would assume that when you get the call that you've lost it, you never expect that, but that wasn't, you'd been in that position before. Of course, this is a totally different one and different, but I'm just, I just like to learn from people that have been through horrible experiences.
Let's back up a bit. There were issues in that platoon. I relieved the platoon commander because he was not, his head wasn't 100% in the game. And that was hard because you can kill a guy's career. But he, he wasn't happy with me, of course, but he turned around and became a phenomenal officer. And I wrote a letter to the XO board when he was going up, I think for his uh, first or second look, and I told the, the board exactly what happened, but how, you know, he didn't sulk. He held his head high, and he took it for what it was worth, and just changed. And he became a phenomenal officer. There was one other leader that I should have relieved also that I didn't because um, I didn't know the extent of some of the issues that were going on. Um, but that was also hard because now you've got a change in a fairly good shakeup in leadership, and that can impact a platoon. Um, The corpsman in that platoon, when I did turnover, taken (laughs) right before the change of command, you get time, you sit with the outgoing CO, and you go through all the issues in the command. Here's what's good. Here's where you're going to have challenges. Here's what to look out for. And he gave me uh, just a couple, two, three people that I had to keep an eye on. One was the platoon corpsman in that platoon. He was put on a letter of instruction because he was not getting the qualifications he needed to be a full-up corpsman to go into combat. Well, the end of that six months, he'd done absolutely nothing to prepare. Or I don't recall him doing anything. Yeah, he didn't. I know who you're talking about. (laughs) So I fired him, convened a Trident Review Board, and we conducted the board, stripped him of his qualifications, and sent him back to the Navy as a Quad Zero Corpsman. He had no qualifications. So I put a new corpsman in that platoon. I think it was on a Tuesday. Thursday is their first field exercise. First squad goes through, no issues. Second squad, they're doing their live fire. And you guys know, when when you're coming in and out of an SDV, you don't wear body armor. You're not swimming with body armor. So you train the the way you fight. (laughs) Train the way you fight. So the guys weren't wearing body armor. They were in a closed terrain situation. Closed terrain, you guys know what the deal is, where you cannot pull everybody online. You can just step into your fields of fire, and then you're doing a center peel. The assistant platoon commander that was running that squad, I was standing behind a tree watching the guys do their thing. RSO 
the range safety officer walks past me because there's the last couple guys that are firing. He's got to get out of the way. He walks past me to get in position to let the next couple guys go by. I see the assistant platoon commander drop down on his ACOG, his scope, as another guy stands up to do the center peel. I see a puff of smoke. I look at the kid's chest. I I mean, it happened so fast, there was nothing I could do. There was nothing the RSO could do. I looked in Andy's chest, didn't see anything, looked in his eyes. I knew he'd been shot. So I turned to Rob, who was the range safety officer. Rob, you got a man down. I forgot you were standing there. Ah, they were all there. Yeah. (laughs) And you guys know the deal. The platoon runs. Training cadre will run medical exercises to see how the platoon reacts. Robbie thought I was conducting a medical exercise on my cadre because I was no, very calm. Never forget this. Very calm. Very calm. This, is a, this, is, this was, actually is a great story. It was stifling how calm you were. I just said, Robbie, you've got a man down. So Robbie comes up to Andy. Sir, what's your problem? Andy looks at him and goes, I've been fucking shot. Robbie realizes this is not a drill. So he initiates the medevac. The corpsman I put in that platoon is right over here, Marcus. He saved Andy's life. Man, I'm... What, they put 50 units of blood in oh, him? Oh, yeah. He, he was jacked up. He was. He's jacked up. I'll never get coming up that hill. Because I was sitting down at the base of the hill in that tree with that... I had that walkie-talkie on my chest. I'd been in the platoon a day. <laughs> and I was down there. And, I mean, that came over, man down. That's all he said. And we come all that stuff in that truck, and I fell out of the side of it and rolled down that hill. And we come running down around the corner. And, I mean, Skipper's standing there, had his arms crossed. Then Rob's standing there, and, and I think Warren. And they had these looks like, like they're just a stoic. I mean, like it was... Everything was everything. And I kind of looking at them, and I turn around, and he's laying on the ground. And I, he had this little, remember that blood bubble he had on top of his chest? I was like, oh, some moulage. I was like, tried to wipe it off, and it came back. I was like, well, that's good. That's good. That looks real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I rolled that sucker over, man, and it was laying in that. Oh, yeah. In it that, was through and through. Yeah, through and through, yeah. And uh, so I corked him with my finger, and then, man, we went to work. Yeah. We got real quick. When I was waiting on that helo, I had that water hose and that spike. You know, I was chest tubing him, man. It was on. Chest tubing while he was awake? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, he passed out on me in the hospital, and we cut him to put that chest tube, and he sat up off that bed, and I slammed him back down. I was like, take the pain. <laughs> <laughs> Take the pain. Oh, man, that was a hell of a day. I'll never forget it. Yeah, yeah you're like, like, oh, it's real. It's real. I said, just like that. And you're standing there. I mean, I'll never, I could see your face just like you were standing in the camis. And you're like, <laughs> like, this ain't my job. You better get your ass to work. I mean, you want to know when it got real on me? I was like, all right. And I started going through the motions. And I, I had to sit back for a second on my knee because that smell hit me. You know how hot it was out there oh, yeah. and that blood? When there's a lot of blood, it's 
It's a different smell. It's different. All it's, it's all together, man. Different. That's what people throw up. That's, yeah, that's what it's like. This, it has a very distinct smell. And me and uh, Doc Payne, yeah, went to work on them. You guys had that other corpsman been in that platoon, Andy would be dead. Because oh. he would not have had the experience to deal with that kind of a wound. Because that was a combat wound. Oh, and it was like it was upper upper Ch- chest, right? right? Yeah, through upper through right the- quadrant. It vaporized. Dude, so much. Splintered yeah, his ribs. Green blew yeah. that freaking break, oh, break plexus. But it was close and like, like, like this, this close, right? It was about six, six, eight feet. <sighs> and uh, he ended up losing the use of his arm. Yeah, I mean, it fucked him. I mean, it screwed him up. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, it screwed him up. Yeah. So I mean, we were bebopping it, and no, okay. And Andy was a new guy, and oh, yeah. nobody knew him. Nobody he was brand new. He, like I'm, just showed up. Just got there. Oh. Yeah. All happy go. I'd, I'd said two excited. words to him. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? How you you doing? know, we had to find his wife. I yeah, remember that? They were newlyweds. Newlyweds. Yeah. Newlyweds. Living and in Hawaii. Family is to the winds. Yeah. She's someplace on the island. And it took ah, us a while to find her, get her to the hospital. And again, our ombudsman was just same phenomenal. Same, 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 same ombudsman. ombudsman. Same yeah. one. Okay, y'all keep same. talking about this title, but it's a title I've never heard before. Ombudsman. Talk to okay. us. Um, O-M-B-U-D-S-M-E-N. Ombudsman. Yeah. Ombudsman. They're the, okay. they're the liaison officer to the families by, with, and through the skipper. Yeah. So, okay. It's an official position, and she relays information from the families to the old man, and the old man can, through the ombudsman officially address families wow. concerns that yeah. kind of thing it's a big it's a big, it's a big deal. deal yeah we're talking about dying, yeah. you know, and that way that way good. the skipper's not inundated with every single individual that's a part of the command as far as family goes the ombudsman takes that on on wow. their own so that's yeah, a heavy, that's a heavy un, job un, unlike oh. the ceo of a company you may be worried about people's families as a ceo you are responsible not just for the service member but for their families we're going to get her on the podcast yeah. we can't um, Crazy. You know, after that, there was a lot of pressure to fire Murph. Mike Murphy was that assistant platoon commander. And I sat down with my training department because it was an accident. Oh, yeah. It was a tragic accident that almost killed Andy. It, but it was an accident. Pulled the training cadre in. What type? Because I knew Murph, but I didn't see him day to day. The training cadre did. What's he like? He's a good J.O. Okay. I pulled Murph in. We talked through it. He made a tragic mistake. But he learned from it. And I knew he would never make that mistake again. As a leader, lose situational awareness of his men. And there were a lot of armchair quarterbacks. Always are, right? But when I explained myself, both to my Commodore and to the Admiral, they let me keep him. And he, you know, he turned into a 
good hey. officer. Oh, yeah. Our, our job's dangerous, right? And, I mean, it, it, there are guys, when the situations go down, you're like, hey, that's just probably was part of our lives, right? And, and, and that's what I said to the armchair you know, quarterbacks. This one guy, they had a close call on a range. No one got injured. But a round went by somebody. Yeah. I said, did you fire him? No. Because he made a mistake, right? This one was tragic. That doesn't mean I should fire him. He's going to learn from it and be much better from that. Yeah. And he was. And it was only a few years ago. I think it might have been last year when I finally got the chance where Andy and I sat down and we could discuss. Oh, really? Oh, that's good. That level of why, what was my thought process? Of why Mike didn't get fired. Yeah. And when I explained it, that helped Andy at another level of healing. Sure. How could it not? Yeah. Always good when the boss sets you down. I mean, every every reaction. It's just you... a perspective that he never got a chance to see. Yeah. yeah. I've never heard it either until now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he didn't. Because remember, we you, we you'd send us. We go check on him in the hospitals and stuff. Uh, that first time I we lived in that hospital with that boy. Uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> yeah, for a long time. Long time. And then, and then after he gets out of the hospital, all worked. that he goes back in like a month later because he's got testicular cancer. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sorry. He goes back a month later because his heart fails. That's right. He had that pericardial tamponade. And his heart was back. Goes up. back in. They then he gets out again, and then like some short time later, testicular cancer goes back in. So check this out. It, it, you have this sac around your heart. It's called a pericardial sac, right? And if you, it, he had a slow leak in it, and what, so if you get three cc's of fluid in your pericardial sac, it will squeeze your heart to where it goes into what's called uh, ventricular fibrillation. Right? Don't start to, you know, a heart attack. Basically, it's kind of pressure. He had thirty cc's, right? <sighs> 30 cc's in that sack. Then it slowly had, he was like, having trouble. Remember the doctor's like, you ain't gonna make it. Told his wife and the dude that was going, Morgan was sitting there. He's like, you're, gonna, you're not gonna make it. You're probably gonna die. And Morgan's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that took that doctor out in the hallway. Yeah, but hey, motherfucker. He was you know, he was commander and I was an E5 boy. You would thought Jesus was talking to him when I got done with him. You don't ever do. I mean, we were pissed, dude. And, and then, yeah, we came, he was sitting in, we came in to check out him uh, again in the hospital. I'm like, hey, where's Andy? He went in his room. He's like, oh, he's down in x-ray. So Mojo and I go be walking through the hospital and there's these big glass windows and you can see them with their backs to the glass. You know, they're sitting in the waiting room. So we're banging on the glass. I'm like, what's <laughs> up, dude? We're here to see you. And they turn around and they're both crying. Oh, just God. bawling their eyes like, out, right? So we go in and, we, and Morgan's like, well, what's wrong now? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, he, 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 he goes, well, man, they found out I had testicular cancer and they're going to take one of my, my boys. And so Mojo and I kind of sit back, sit down, about 10 seconds go by, and we're like, that's great. Now you get to tell them you want a brass ball sewn up in there so when you sit down, it clanks the, the freaking chair. After everything you've been through. And then when you walk in, they listen to me like, that officer's got balls that clank. I mean, we were hitting it from every angle to make him happy, right? Just, just to keep it going. And... uh he made. He got it through. Man, he got like nine kids. You know. Nah, not that. Yeah, he's got three. Anyway. He's got a bunch. <laughs> All with one ball. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. working overtime, man. <laughs> and yeah, a great sense of humor about it, for sure. That's awesome.
Well, that, that's good. That so that, that that lends itself as well because I'm sure everybody, our community, we eat our own. At times, yeah. And you stood your ground on that one, and turned out to be, I mean, Murphy saved bro's life. So yeah, there you go. I give and take. The Lord has His own way of doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely, right? yeah, you know, kind of we we get in the way of that. Or our minds do. Yep. Sometimes you forget what we saddled up for. Just a, an average minute in our life is is will kill you, and we don't think about it like that. No. What's one Not until we get older. Yeah, oh, man. and reflect. Yeah. What, yeah what's one, one of the more? What's one of the most valuable things you've taken away from your career as far as? It had to be humility or just. And did it come up in the good times, bad times, or when in the it's normal times? It's got to be always times? in the bad times. <laughs> right? It's always in the bad times, right? I think that's where people show their true colors is when things are just going sideways. Um, Put you on the spot on that one, though. But that's lessons learned, though, too, right? Because I mean, your scenarios over time, just what we've been with you, have have escalated. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if they would have set the same scenario down in front of you. You would have already had that been nothing. You know, for me, probably the biggest thing was remaining remaining calm when it is just. I saw firsthand our command start to because everybody were so close. We were so close out there, and everybody wasn't. It was family. Oh yeah, yeah. it's different out everybody there, man. Everybody was coming off the rails, yeah. except you. We're completely different out and there. And I mean, you 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 brought that cohesiveness back to us. I, I'll give you credit. It uh, for doing that. You know, Phil and I were on a uh, deployment together. I was a CO. He was the ASDS uh, department head at the time. And that's the mission that, uh, oh, man. We don't talk about the ASDS mission. Yeah. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. They missed the rendezvous window. So we moved to the secondary extraction point or secondary rendezvous point. And they missed that. And we are now within one minute of executing the contingency operation, which would send Red Star clusters up because we're in an area we shouldn't be. And then we hear them on sonar. So we close, get a rendezvous with them, get them on board. Everything's good. Successful operation. And Phil looks at me. He's like, how did you remain so calm? <laughs> I said, Phil, I was just praying to God we would not have to execute that contingency. Mm. But we were that close. 
Yeah, that's and a great inside, answer. Inside, like, you're just your yeah. your stomach's whoa, whoa. doing cheetah flips. <laughs> I didn't have time to freak out. I'm praying. <laughs> yeah, right. He's like, he's always so calm. I was like, this probably means he's talking to God. Because <laughs> we've definitely put you in some situations to where that would be the case. Well, multiple times. I I know from my own personal life, yeah. I, I did that to you. As a when I was a platoon commander, we were doing our first. This was our first time we were able to run a training scenario without the buoy. So oh, wow. This is back in the day when we didn't have tracking lights. Yeah. And there was no way to track other than the buoy. So once you got to a certain proficiency, you had to get the skipper's permission to then mm. operate without a buoy. Which meant we had a pinger on board. Yeah, yeah. That's big boy rules there. And the dive soup could drop the... Uh, I forget what receiver. it was called. Yeah, the, receiver. Yeah, the receiver, receiver in the water and kind of get a, at least a bearing yeah. on where you're at. We're down Puerto Rico. I'm the commander, me and my dive buddy, we're going to go in, we're going to do a ship attack out on uh, uh, Pinero. Not Pinero, so what was the Long Island? Um, mm, across from Puerto Rico. I don't recall. Uh, doesn't matter. Take the Sea Fox out. We're all on the uh, whaler. We got the Sea Fox towing the SDB out. Well, back that Sea Fox, we used to call it a Swamp Fox because it didn't handle waves very well, but it put out a huge wake. And if you didn't have the tether just right on the tow, the sled would plow into the water and yeah. go underwater. Well, we had a series of waves come in that just hit just right. And the SDV and sled go under, they pop up, and it's kind of cocked sideways. Well, we get out to our launch point, and we're in some pretty heavy seas. And they're working on the SDV. We start getting jocked up. It's winter time in Puerto Rico. So the water, it wasn't cold, but I'd hyped out too many times by that point. So yeah. I, I was a weenie. I had to put a wetsuit on. So I'm in rubber. It's like 80-some-odd degrees outside. I'm fully jocked up, got the rig, Mark 15 on my back, and we're just, now we're just floating, and the heat's getting to you. Well, back then, the outboards, we had twin 200s or twin 150s on the back of the whaler. They were two-stroke. Mm -hmm. Well, the dive soup's trying to keep his eye on what's going yeah. on as the safety diver's trying to untangle the SDV in the sled and get it released. And the fumes start coming across. And now I'm getting seasick. <laughs> and I don't get seasick often. But, you know, the when fumes, you start man. when you start getting there, it's just bad. So we're sitting. They finally moved the boat so we're not getting the fumes. But we're still, you're, we're in like six-foot seas. And I'm about ready to puke when Monty finally goes, all right, get in the water. We put our masks Dive in the water. You get that fresh, cool water yeah. hit you. You pull your wetsuit out. You get that sense of relief. <sighs> we get in the SDV. We're going through our checks, and we've still got an issue. So we're floating. Now you're looking through your auger, <laughs> and you're bouncing, and I'm getting sick. And I'm on the radio going, Monty, you have got to give us permission to dive. I don't remember what the thing was an issue. I don't remember what it was. So finally, we get permission. And I'm feeling like crap at this point. 
dive buddy. He's the pilot. I'm the nav. He hits the throttle, pushes the stick down. We start going down. We didn't hit 15 feet, and I throw up in my auger. <laughs> like a chum aquarium. <laughs> What's the first thing you need to do after you throw up? <laughs> Inhale. Well, I'm in the auger. It is full of puke. You can't inhale. So I hit my diluent bypass. And you know those little uh, straws they put in mixed drinks? Uh-huh. I purse my lips that small to get air into my lungs without inhaling vomit. And I finally get a lung full. And I blow all that into my rig. I take, and my dive buddy's still going down. <laughs> I has no it. idea this is going on, by the oh. way. You, 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 you got to know that, right? If one person's mm-hmm. diving that thing and you're going down in depth and you got your buddy over there who's supposed to be nabbing, just hurrah! <laughs> you're like, can't uh-huh. see anything. <laughs> I, I get that one breath. I blow it into the rig. I take another inhale and throw up again. Go through that process and throw up a third time. I threw up three times on the way down. And we finally get down, and my dad buddy's like, you okay? I'm like, oh, I feel like crap. He's like, we got to get you up, and we got to tell the dive soup. I'm like, oh, hell no. The last because, thing we do is go back up, right? Well, what's one of the symptoms of an embolism? Vomit. A vomit. I'm like, I'm not going in for a chamber ride. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine. Well, it was a full six-hour mission. Just inhaling the chunks in your... (laughs) And I had a mustache back then, so it's all chunks are in my mustache. What's up? (laughs) My stomach hurt so bad, I had to take my dive belt off and lay it across my lap while we were doing our insertion. And then when the night was over, I had to clean that up. Yeah. I would always throw up in my full face mask and then take it off and rinse it out and then put it back on, purge it, and go again. I couldn't. I I didn't even think about pulling it off. I didn't want to. I just. Well, I threw up in my Draeger. Well, the Draeger's one thing. We have to shut it down. You got to shut it down. That whole thing. Yeah, that. And then I watched JJ get real sick. We got seasick on those, the surface those lines, and then had to go down with it, man. You just you could continue to smell it. And every time you breathe in, it goes. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. awful. It's like you're sitting in your stomach, right? Uh, when you're in the water and you're just. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do. And in that full face mask, your nose and mouth. Yeah, everything's all exposed. There. It's yeah. like, I mean, smell everything, dude. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, no, I'd rinse it out. <laughs> dude, there's some. Awful. Everything. Everybody thinks everything's when we get underwater, man. There's some stuff that happens down there that you learn patience. Hey, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> you got to be calm. Yeah. Learn how to do That's that. one thing you can't do is freak out. So, so 30, so I, so I mean, you've had an amazing career 30 years in naval special warfare. Yeah. What, what are you doing now? You know, when I retired, one of the things God put on my heart was to mentor the next generation. And Part of what I do is I'm a guest lecturer at uh, the local college, talk to the freshmen. Uh, I'm a leadership coach and mentor for University of Tennessee's MBA program. Oh, I wow. work with uh, 
they're, they've got a special aerospace and defense MBA program specific for uh, folks that are working either in the government or for contractors who work with the government because government's a different animal yeah. than regular business. I may not have the business expertise that a lot of these coaches have, but I've got a lot of leadership expertise and lessons learned. Experience. That, yeah, that I can, because when it comes down to it, it's about people. Have you to spoken to, have they brought you in to talk to any of the police departments that have lost officers and speak to their leadership? No. Um, I have talked to, when I first retired, I talked to a police department up in um, New Jersey. One of the guys I went to school with, he was the chief of police. He brought me up, and that was a lot of fun. Um, when my brother-in-law was the chief of police in Orlando, John Mina. He was the chief of police when the Pulse nightclub mm. shooting uh, yeah. happened. And I got the chance to talk to him. One of the things I discussed with him is when you do your after action, when you sit down with the officers, You've got to have, they've got to have the ability to be able to say, this is where I made a mistake without getting hammered for it. Mm -hmm. Because no one's going to tell you they did something wrong if they think they're going to get in trouble. Sure. And the other way to look at it, when you look at decisions people make, you cannot look at it with twenty twenty hindsight. You've got to look at that decision. What did they know? What did they see? And what did they know at the moment they had to make the decision? Yeah. And that's significantly different mm -hmm. than looking at that decision from the outside in when you have more information. Sure. And that's where the key lessons learned come from. It's not from looking back with 2020 hindsight and going, well, why didn't you make this decision? What's well, easy to do when they got all the information, but you, right. you, it, it's an assumption that they, that everyone going into the scenario knows everything they're supposed to do. And it's not what they did wrong. They just didn't know how to do that part, obviously. Or they didn't have a key piece of information that right. would have changed the yeah, decision. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And uh, I know John was appreciative of that. I never got the chance to talk to him afterwards on... Uh, how that went and whether they were, the, whether they were truly able to execute it. Cause you, you guys know that's something we took to heart. The only way you're going to get better is to be able to say, Hey, this is mine. I made that decision. This is why I made the decision. Man, we do that in the teams. Even when you do something right. Right. Well, that, that wasn't good. Enough. I mean, it was all right, but, you know, but we were all constantly. So we get past that point of like someone trying to, the debrief is not, you're not getting scolded. Yeah, you kind of want to hear what you're doing wrong because that'll let you do it right. Right. We learn more from our mistakes than we ever do when things go right. And I tell that to all these folks. I tell everybody that tell them I've learned more in my failures than I ever did in my successes. Absolutely. That's how you know you're teaching. I tell my kids, I'm like, man, if you go out there and get whipped, someone was teaching you something. If you go out there and whip somebody, you were teaching them a lesson. And the word can't, that T at the end is time and training. Yeah. Just, 
anything we, we were sub on before, when we get back and go back through it, we understand that component. We didn't see that variable. Yeah. And once you notice it, because they don't, they don't show up. They only show up in times of certain situations. Like life, it, it does its own thing. It's a, right? Yeah. And the more you, we train in it, and that's what people don't anticipate or what they overlook about us is that's all we do. Yeah. So what's next? That's a good question. Can I have a next chapter? Right now, I am enjoying what I'm doing. I enjoy being able to spend more time with my family. Uh, How old are the kids now? You've earned that. Yeah. The, my oldest is, what, 36 now? Uh, I've got three older kids from a previous marriage. They're, in all their, they're all in their 30s now. And then at home, uh, Jake's 16. He's driving now. Phenomenal, phenomenal uh, young man. Very focused. And then the twins are 14. They're all Ooh. great kids. They all swim competitively. Oh, good. And uh, they'll all kick my butt in the water. So are you in the point, like when we, when we rotate it out, like words of wisdom to the guys who are coming up? Because it's tough. Especially for 30 years. I tell most of the guys for every two you're in, it take for every 10 you're in, it takes two to detox. And that kind of is a variant between what and who you what you had to go through. But well, I'll t- I'll tell you, when I retired, uh, my wife told me, take six months off. Just take the time off. And when I retired, she wouldn't let me get a phone for the first month. Good for her. I love that woman. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're when you're constantly tied to operations you've got the phone she was like complete detox and it took me it was about two weeks maybe three after i retired after we moved up to tennessee where all of a sudden i woke up one day and it felt like i had a huge weight lifted off my shoulders those responsibilities that we hold, you don't even realize mm. the stress and the weight of those responsibilities until they're no longer yours. Yeah, so you pass them over. Yeah. And I'll tell you, for the guys that are getting out, the guys that have been doing this, and they don't realize it when they're in because everything we do is by routine and time. You're, every, you, you've got places to be. You're just yeah. executing what you've got to do. But when you're taken out of that situation, and Mojo, you wrote the paper about Warrior Syndrome. Hmm. Operator syndrome? Yeah, operator syndrome. Excuse me. I didn't realize how bad I was. Oh, you're the king of it. (laughs) Until. You're our boss. (laughs) You know, I thought, I just thought I was getting old because I tell people, hey, if you don't see me write something down, then come back and tell me again because I'm pretty sure I'll forget it. And I didn't realize how bad my brain was until we moved to Tennessee to an area 
that I was unfamiliar with. And in Knoxville, there's a place called Market Square. Great little place. It's open. They have farmer's market on the weekends. Lots of good restaurants. And we were, this is probably our seventh time driving down there. And I asked my wife if she was going to pull up the directions on GPS. She looks at me like, you don't remember how to get down there? It's four turns off the highway. And I couldn't remember. And I used to have phenomenal sense of direction. You know, we've all found ourselves where uh, you walk into a room, you're like, crap, what did I come in here for? I'd find myself in a room and I'd be like, I have no idea why I'm here. Or I'd be driving down the road and I'd have no idea where I was going. Yeah, so is that a thing with the directions? Because I have that. I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, we can find our way underwater, but like up on land, like I couldn't... I didn't that, know that has was, to do with the damage done to the brain. That? All right. I have that. I didn't know that was a From thing. From not just, you know, I did two tours at Damn Neck being in the assault boats. Your, your noggin's getting wrong left and right being out on the high-speed assault craft. But all the explosive blasts, the breaching, the mortars, the charges, the rockets, the AT-4s, the laws, the damage done to the brain is devastating. And I've done multiple different types of things to help heal. You know, the first one I did was the magnetic resonance therapy when they were doing the testing at SOCOM. Now, I was too old for the testing. But then I talked to the doc, and the doc said, hey, you find your way out here. I'll run you through it. And that's when I called you to ask you about it. That worked. That gave me relief after going through it. It was amazing. But it only lasted a short period of time. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize my endocrine system was completely shot. Completely shot. Everything was out of whack. And that's something else all our guys are dealing with, yeah. whether they realize it or not. One of the things that truly helped me the most in early on was getting my endocrine system squared away, which I'm still doing, and doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy. That has given me the long, longest lasting. That's a game changer, uh, the O2 in yeah. the chamber. Sure. Because being down on 100% oxygen it helps reestablish the neural connections in the brain. So being in the SDV underwater was actually good for us. Yes, it was. In Doing the drugger dives. Drugger dive. Right. It was very 20 good feet for us. For hours, yeah. cold yeah. water. I always felt great when I got out. Yeah. Um, I didn't. <laughs> I was pissed off, but I, was, I felt great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then This healing journey has probably been the hardest for me. Um, my marriage was on its last leg because when I retired, Cam thought, I'm going to get my husband back. And I wasn't there. Yeah. 
got back a different model. Not just physically broken, but I was a shell. I'd go into what I'd call deployment mode, where I'm doing something, everything around me is noise, and we get very good at ignoring the noise. Well, when that noise is your family, yeah, that's not good for a marriage. And that's what started. That's what got me to pull my head out of my second point of contact and start the healing journey. Yeah. And I can't ask for a better spouse than Cam, who's helped me through this journey. Um, it's almost going back to training, like being re. We, whatever they send back, whatever they sent back after we were done with all that. And you kind of stand there, it looks the same, but it's a completely different floor model. Yeah. <laughs> the driver's different. Right, and it's almost like starting back in buzz again and going re going through that training with with the spouses. Yeah, and it took us all the way to the edge on the horror part, and then slowly building us back back into what, just like we were created in the beginning yeah. almost. And they're having to go through that part with us. And that's probably you know one of the things uh, when you guys invited me to come talk was what's my greatest never quit story. And I'm, you know, I thought long and hard about that. I haven't been through what you guys have been through. You know, I think the first one that came to my mind was, you know, when I took command as an 05, I had this set of twins. Oh, my Lord, they keep me on my toes. They looked a lot like you two, but younger with less tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> There's none. <laughs> we were bare. Um, but honestly, it's been since I've retired, it's been this healing journey. Not quitting on my family. Mm -hmm. Repairing my marriage and being there for my kids. That's probably the best answer I've ever heard for a never, for a never quit podcast. We have, all of them have one. But when, and everybody has a scenario with the wife usually, but no one ever brings that part up. How hard it was to keep that together. Yeah. That has, and it's not just me. Every, when I first retired, I retired out of Germany. We took the rotator in the BWI up in Baltimore, rented a minivan, had our dog, had the kids. We drove down to Virginia Beach to see. Uh, family or see friends before we went down to Florida where I was going to do my retirement ceremony and where all our family was. And when we got to Virginia Beach, guys that I've known for years and years and years, some of them look like a shell of themselves. Others, I'd ask them, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm involved in this. And their wives are behind them going, oh, no, he's not doing well at all. He's struggling with anger. He's struggling with withdrawal. He's struggling. Every single one of us has been struggling. Some realized it. Some still haven't yeah. come to grips with it. Um, I was at a uh, retirement ceremony for one of the guys that worked for me. And while I was at his reception i met a couple guys who were part of the seal future foundation 
they dialed me in with what they had available. So one guy called me. I'm, we're back home. And he said, hey, here's all the things that we help guys with. A lot was transition. And they brought up a retreat down in Mexico. What's that about? They're using psychedelics to help guys. I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm not going, not only no, but no. You know, you grow up the son of a cop. Anytime anybody brings that up, you yeah, I, 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 oh, yeah. <laughs> there is like no way. Sure. I've seen the evil side of what that does. But it was a misuse of stuff. And it wasn't until my wife and I sat down with another frog and his wife, and he walked us through everything he struggled with. I told him what I was struggling, struggling with, and he's, he looked at me and said, Todd, you need this. We, my wife and I walked away. What do you think? I said, I think I need to go. And I went. And I'll be honest with you, I've never been so scared in my life. Never been so scared in my life. Because we're very good at controlling everything we can control. Yeah. That's Even the things we can't control, we try and come up with it. contingencies <laughs> right? to somewhat have semblance of control and absolute chaos. But you're going into a position where you are going to be completely out of control. But I knew there were frogmen there that had been through it, that were there to support and hold that space and protect us. So we went, we met in uh, San Diego, drove where we needed to go. Ceremony, very formal. Respect the medicine. And that first night we did Ibogaine on a Friday night. Did an EKG before the ceremony. Got it clear from the doctor. They had two doctors, two nurses there to watch us. Had a very formal, reverent ceremony. Got hooked, went upstairs, got in our beds, got hooked up to a heart monitor, an O2 monitor. And I'm thinking, and I'm waiting for it to come on. And then all of a sudden, I felt like I was sitting on the beach and I'm looking up at a 40 foot wave getting ready to crash over my head. That's awesome. <laughs> and I, my next thought was, oh shit, what did I do? <laughs> and then the next thing I knew, I'm standing on a little bridge over a brook. And my intention going in was, Lord, heal me. So, if, you know, just like being on the ramp of a bird, I just said, Lord, take me where you need me to go. And I dove in. It was absolutely miserable. I didn't have any visions. Mine was very, very physical. I 
purged all night long. Um, you know, at one point in the night, I remember I only had two, two visions. One was being up on a grassy knoll in the sunshine. I felt the hand on my shoulder and I knew it was Jesus. And he was there with me. The only other vision I had was I actually had my eyes open at the time and saw a medicine man. And he turns his head and looks at me and gets up and starts walking toward me. I was like, oh, crap. And I shut my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> he saw me. And, uh, you know, I talked to somebody that had been in this space for a long time. And they said, next time, ask him or her. Ask him who they are and what do they have to tell you because they can't hurt you. But I didn't know that at the time. It just, I was like, I'm not dealing with this. I closed my eyes. <laughs> but I purged all night long. And the next day, I think it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon before I could physically stand up without feeling like I was going to throw up again. And then Sunday, I still hadn't eaten. I couldn't eat anything. We did 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, and it was an exorcism. I felt like I had gone to hell each time I did it. I just felt myself falling backwards, and I was in a space utterly alone and disconnected from God. And I felt miserable. I did not like being there. And I purged constantly. But after that last hit, they only last, what, four minutes? Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's a short but explosive journey. I just, I felt the love of God, and I was like, Lord, thank you. And I was at utter peace. But it took like five hits. <laughs> for me to it was an exorcism to get yeah. all those demons all that evil we've seen over the years people don't realize you pick up stuff along the way yeah that's why people's attitudes change why their demeanor changes and everything yeah. it's like a, it's just it's part of it and i've done two other journeys after that and each one has been great healing and how you feel now i feel wonderful I feel at ease. At peace. I feel good. at peace. Which makes the body sore thing not a thing, right? Right. It's just body sore. Yeah. Once The problem is when our minds are the way they were. You know, the, the best way I can describe it, because I've talked to a few folks that work in the psychedelic space, and I'm like, why the IBD? That's like using a 10-pound sledgehammer to put in a finishing nail. Attack nail. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, at first you don't think about it. But when you spend your life ignoring pain, ignoring emotion, you completely disconnect your head from your heart. Yeah. And we needed that explosive charge to break down that barrier. Mm -hmm. So you can finally start to heal. Yeah. 
And each time I've done it, it's been deeper and deeper. And uh, it's almost as if our body goes through so much pain throughout our lives that it just the mind's like, yeah, and I'm just not going to deal with it. Our tolerance to pain is very, very high. That that was the thing it had to me is when it was disconnecting my body from my mind. I didn't like that. Yeah. Because usually your body's like, if you get into a situation, that thing will haul ass. <laughs> yeah. It takes care of that for sure. Yeah. I'm so happy for you now, Skipper, and everything yeah. that you've been through and, and gone through with us and for what we put you through. And, I mean, it's definitely been – our life's been a journey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't wait till we get back and hear that what the – the overall purpose and end game. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I was like, all right, so some of us have been together for a long time through some stuff that no one else has to go through. We're still together. And even in this last part, like we'll be together writing, writing out after actions and what works and what yeah. doesn't passing it down to the kids. Right? But that's why we have to do it. Yeah. You know, I, uh, you made a comment earlier, Mojo about, uh, locker room. Was it you that got thrown out of the locker room? Yeah, that was me. It was. In all my glory. So, correct me if I'm wrong. I've got congressional staffers behind me. And I would... We're doing the dog and pony. And I've gone... Coming down the hallway... And I bring them past the locker rooms because that's where all the neat pictures were. That's right. That's the only place they were in the and beginning. The hallway yeah. is and easily oh, it's, fifty to seventy-five it's, it's yards right. long. We're right. not talking about a short. We're talking about a long hallway. And all of a sudden, the locker room door opens, and this guy gets pushed out. He's got a steel pot on his head. I've got my my combat helmet on. Yep. He's got a web belt with his. UDT knife on the web belt and combat boots and nothing else. And I'm just like, and, and, and there's nowhere to go. And just so you know, <laughs> and just You're so you know, Ento was 16. I think there was around 16. Yeah. Congressional staff members. The majority of them are women following the commanding officer of the command down this hallway where I'm standing naked. <gasps> oh God. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, giving a tour of the command. Yeah. Then he's got one of his boys hanging out with his dog out, you know, he kind of So, Morgan <laughs> snaps to attention because he can't get back in. They're all holding the door shut on him. He snaps to attention, takes the helmet off his head, puts it on his crotch, and just stays at attention <laughs> as we're trying to walk by. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my Lord, I'm going to be fired. I'm going to have a congressional inquiry on what in the world are these guys doing so down there. Listen out there. I was really, really good shape back in them days. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't miss a beat. Carry on smartly. Just kept on the tour. <laughs> kept doing the tour, man, like it was normal. What am I? What else are you going to do? <laughs> oh, that was the greatest story, man, when that came out. Oh, Were you dude. horrified? Dude, what did you think it was hilarious? Dude, the back of my knee started to sweat. Scared to death, dude. <laughs> I mean, it was like, hey, this you were an E5 at the time. Oh, just yeah. The around we're doing now. I mean, this there, wasn't, there was a, a family of you that he had taken control of the team. You know, I, I was a, not something dude, you want to put your CO fuck. in. And how much trouble did you get in for this? <laughs> nothing. No, no, no trouble. I mean, it wasn't, you know, he's, nothing. Dude, he was the best CO. <laughs> like, if we really screwed up on purpose, you know, we then we get our asses handed to us. But then there was. Did you get any comments? 
I don't remember. I don't oh, what, they, what they would say. <laughs> yeah, he was like, most of them uh, are women, right? Who's that? <laughs> This is one of my guys. They were, I mean, they were like, <laughs> let me introduce you to Morgan. Here's some, here's some, here's some Walmart. I, I think I explained it about, you know, you get a bunch of type boys A personalities and sometimes hey, they, they do stuff that isn't there are the men. brightest. Yeah, yeah. There it's are we're all together in, in our downtime, man. When that, we, he's pretty lenient on us. When, if you screw up while you're working, that's different. That was completely different. But if we were off on Liberty or something, just doing our thing, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, that that story plays out. <laughs> oh, I'll tell Lord. you the whole story one day. It's uh, yeah, that's great. All right, close up. All right, guys, thank you so much. Is there any way that our listeners can support you and what you've got going on? Well, anybody interested, I'm one of the team. Never quit speakers. I'm on LinkedIn. They can hit me up there, ask me questions. Because um, when we put this out, like all the kids, our younger generation that we're mentoring, they'll just start firing you questions on your email and just answer them accordingly. Absolutely. Okay. We can make that happen for sure. All right. All right that's it. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate you. Skipper, You're welcome. Love you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Awesome. It's been great here. It's good seeing you guys, as always. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.